The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Zechariah's prophecy is where we are going to be this morning. So from John, we flip back uh, just one book to the beginning of Luke and would encourage you to get to Luke in your scriptures, please. <clears throat> We're going to be a little text specific this morning, so it would be helpful for you to have your Bibles open. And uh, we'll be at a couple other places as well uh, in the text, so, um, uh, or in the Bible, I should say, so would encourage you to have that uh, have open and available. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. So in this Advent series, I've tried to keep in mind that the story Luke is weaving together is to be read on three levels. Uh, first, it is a very personal story of how God entered into the lives of people. He changed the course of their lives. Uh, that's where we started. The barren woman, Elizabeth, bore a son, and not just any son, but one who would be the voice that cried in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Uh, the second way to read this, uh, this account in Luke 1 is as a celebration. Uh, the Song of Mary, uh, God's song, Sarah sang for us last week, uh, along with Zechariah's prophecy, which we'll look at this morning, uh, have the salvation of Israel as their central theme, thus their celebratory. They are looking to God and giving praise to God for what God is doing for them, his chosen people. John the Baptist comes on the scene as a prophet of Israel. Mary's child uh, the, is the promised Messiah of Israel. And so it is a massive celebration from barrenness to bounty, personalized in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then for the entire nation of Israel through Mary's son who came into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a third way, right, that the story is to be read. And that is Mary's son, Jesus, is the savior, not just of Israel, but he's the savior of the entire world. He is the savior of the entire human race. So the barrenness to bounty uh, is the larger theme of God's work for his world as God moves evil off the mark. He brings in the age of grace and he brings in the power of grace. The power of grace. And he does so uh, that we might then find praise uh, to be the starting point of our own hope. Uh, hope for our own personal lives, hope for our own nation, and hope for the world. As I uh, have been uh, saying, there are certain assertions 
then that we have to make certain truth statements about this text that are very important. And the three that I have made thus far through the Advent series uh, and their accompanying assertions uh, have focused on the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ to return as judge of the living and the dead. And I made it clear last week, and I want to make it clear again this week. It is not enough for the church simply to say that they believe Jesus is returning. When you said that, uh, previously in America as a nation that had some understanding of the Bible and Christianity, they understood that included judgment. But now that, that understanding and that idea is almost completely removed, and in some cases, even the talk of judgment inside the church of Jesus Christ is considered anathema. You can't mention judgment. But the fact remains that Jesus is coming, and when he comes, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And so uh, these assertions and implications inserted into this larger story Luke is telling us, they are reminders that we are not just reading past history. How many of you enjoyed history class at school? I enjoyed history class in school. I didn't say I made a good grade. I just enjoyed it. You know, I love reading history. History is a good thing to read. But what we're reading is not just past history, it is God's work in the present day because God's history encompasses all time. And this means that what happened then, as we've been working out of Luke 1, has meaning for us today. It has great relevance for us today because God's time encompasses all time. And so I want you to listen carefully to what the Spirit is saying to the church in this fourth and final assertion. It'll be up on the screen if you'd like to jot it down. The promise of the return of Jesus is certain. The promise of the return of Jesus is certain. And here's the implication. Let us endure in holiness and love as we patiently await his return. The promise is certain. So then we must endure in holiness and love as we patiently await his return. The assertion and the implication then are rooted in two big picture truths that are found in the spirit-filled prophecy of Zechariah, which in uh, Luke chapter number 1 begins at verse number 67. So just to note, the bridge after Mary leaving the house in verse 56 till you get to verse number 67 is the birth of John and all kind of the events around that. And, and uh, Zechariah's mouth now is able to functionally work. Remember, originally he was, uh, he was shut down, right? He had to wear a mask, only it wasn't a mask. It was an actual like closing the vocal cords down. <laughs> And you just be quiet for a moment. <laughs> Zechariah you are going to be quiet for a moment. Because he doubted what the angel said concerning the word of the Lord. Well, now it's been nine months of no talking. And I know there's a whole ton of jokes to be told about that, but we're not going to tell them. I'm just saying it was nine months of no talking. The guy is an old man. He has a lot to say. He's got his first child that, that's coming. He can't even talk about that. And you know what's interesting about his prophecy? 
It's not a celebration of John's birth. I mean, the guy hasn't been able to talk for nine months. He's waited his long life of marriage to have a son. He gets a son, and when his mouth opens up, it's not about the son. It's about what God is doing for his people Israel in answer to Israel's prayers. So here's the, here's the first big picture truth that comes out of Zechariah's prophecy. I think it'll be up on the screen. Yeah, help me out there. Good. As promised, the house of God and the house of David are being joined together as one house. It is not exclusively a house for Israel. It is a house for the nations. Now, some months ago... I introduced this idea that, that the house of Yahweh and the house of David are going to be built together through King David and through the descendants of David. We were talking about that out of that series from Psalm 80 to 89. And here's where, here's where it happens. With the coming of Jesus Christ into the world now, the promise uh, of David's house having a king, an eternal king that would sit on an eternal throne is going to be fulfilled when Jesus enters into the world. And Zechariah is celebrating this. Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And so in doing this, God then shows us how his plan was to save the world through the nation of Israel, but uniquely through the house of David. Now, it's not always easy for us to kind of translate into our lives because we don't think of the house of Andrews, the house of Armstrong, or the house of Wells, you know, we think about Todd and uh, Trisha or uh, uh, Jude or Rod and Cora, you know, and we don't think, oh, through their house, salvation is going to come. Like through the house of the Andrews, technology has blossomed in our uh, church, right? Praise God, right? Right? Praise God. Uh, through the house of the Armstrongs, if we ever need to send a representative to uh, the Masters golf tournament, Jude's the guy we're sending. Sorry. If you're just a duffer like me, you don't get to go, you see. Um, so it's, but through the house of David, salvation for Israel is going to come. And then through the house of David, it's going to open up and be a house for the nations to flow into. That's why as whole Bible Christians, we need to remember we are children of the promise made to Abraham by God that through Abraham the nations would be blessed, and that that promise is fulfilled through establishing the house of David. I read this quote back in the summer. I'll read it again from the theologian Peter Lightheart, who writes in his survey on the Old Testament, all the promises of God to Abraham are now delivered to David so that the future of Israel is bound up with David's household. We are bound up with David's household. Not because of David, but David's a man, but because of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who comes 
as the son of David. And this is a blessing for us because inherit in the promise to Abraham is that the nations would be indeed blessed. In other words, and once again, the way the blessing comes through us is through David's house, which is being built up by God. So I ask you, who is presently sitting on the throne of David? If you went over to Israel, what would you find? You'd find a secular state. There's no, not a kingdom state. Who's presently sitting on the throne of David? Are they waiting for some king to rise up and show themselves? No. Who is presently sitting on David's throne? It's Jesus Christ, who died, rose, ascended, and is exalted. And from that throne, which is an eternal throne, will come again to judge as a king would do. The son that was born to Mary, Jesus Christ, is the one who is sitting on the throne. This is the action then that God took to save the world. And that takes us then to the second kind of big picture truth then out of Zechariah's song. And that is that mercy then is the prominent feature of the kingdom. Mercy is the prominent feature. Mary and her song already directed us to God's mercy as she gave her testimonial about what God was doing in her life and in the lives of her people. Now again, we hear the hope of mercy in Zechariah's prophecy. L listen to it as he, uh, in verse number 72, that God is going to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Mercy again, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Zechariah's message is that God's mercy comes to Israel through the house of David. John the Baptist, as he now, as an adult, steps on the scene as the forerunner to Jesus, says that God's mercy to Israel is going to flow through Jesus, who is the son of David. Zechariah's prophecy is good. It's limited only in this scope. He had yet to be informed about who his son, John, would indeed be pointing people to. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if you think about John's ministry as we have read it over the past uh, weeks, on one hand, John warned the people to flee from the wrath to come. But we should remember that it is through this warning that the door of mercy is pushed open as he tells the people to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. So, so on one hand, there's the warning, flee the wrath to come. But on, on the other side of it, right, we need to remember that John was not the one sitting in the judgment seat. He was only God's prophet preparing the people for the arrival of Jesus, who was declared to be, as we read a little bit ago, the Lamb of God, taking away the sin of the world. As the Spirit empowers John's ministry, we see that he does exactly what the Spirit told Zechariah that John would do. Listen to it, verses 76 through 79. As he talks about his son, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, 
to give knowledge of salvation to his people for the forgiveness of their sins. For, right? For the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. You know, this message of mercy was picked up uh, on also, of course, by Jesus and then by the church apostolic. That God in his mercy has given knowledge of salvation and that knowledge of salvation is indeed for the forgiveness of our sins. It is not, uh, uh, you know, in spite of, but because of God's tender mercy that we have forgiveness. The sunrise visit that, that Zechariah thinks about is from on high as God in his mercy comes down and visits us. Light being given to those who sit in darkness. Light being given to those who sit in the shadow of death. This visitation, what does it result in? It results in people being guided into the way of peace. All those words encompass the great work of God's salvation that is poured forth in God's mercy. Never reduce God's salvation to the equation of, hey, my sins are forgiven, I get to go to heaven. You don't want to put something so grand and marvelous and, and infinite in scope into this little tiny box and say, oh, my sins are forgiven, I get to go to heaven. No, it is so much more. No wonder it is a song of celebration of what God is doing. Just as the promise to Israel concerning mercy coming through the house of David was a certain promise and a certain promise fulfilled, so the promise that our Lord will return to complete the work of mercy that came through the house of David is going to be completed. And the certainty of the promise of the return of Jesus should then compel us to live holy lives filled with love. Holy lives filled with love. So, well, why? Why? Isn't it enough just to have our sins forgiven so we get to go to heaven? No. No, it's not. It's not enough. Just in case you thought it might be. It's not. It's not. And here's why. Mercy says that God loves us. That God loves us. He does not love the best version of us that we might dream up, and that we think needs to be in place in order for God to love us. He loves us. And more specifically, and perhaps someone needs to hear this today, God loves you. He doesn't love the best version that you've tried to achieve of yourself. He simply loves you profoundly loves you. My faith was really empowered and encouraged uh, by a line out of a sermon I heard this past week when the preacher said, it is God who gets us out of the beds we have made for ourselves. It is God who gets us out of the beds we have made for ourselves. I mean, how, how many times uh, have you heard somebody say, well, you made your own bed, lie in it? I've said that. It's been said to me. 
I'm not saying it was wrong necessarily. I'm just saying that's what said, right? But that's not what God says. God says, my mercy demonstrates my love towards you. I'm going to get you out of the bed you've made for yourself because you can't get yourself out of it. You may have the ability to make it, but you don't have the ability to get yourself out of it. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on Luke, makes this observation about a word, just one single word that the Spirit gives to Zechariah in this prophecy, and that is the word visit in verse number 68, that the Lord God has visited. And that word visit uh, is an important word. Uh, it's a fulfillment of a promise. Uh, you see, Zechariah's son, John, is the sign that God is now ready to come and visit his people as he had done in their past history. The longing of many Jews was rooted in their belief that God had deserted them. And one of the reasons why there was such an energy and excitement about John's birth and also about the birth of Jesus was, could this be? Could it be that God has finally come back to us, that God is no longer going to forsake us? But now Zechariah sees that God is going to come and he is going to visit them again. But Sproul makes this observation about the word visit. In, in the Greek language, when, it's, when it comes out of the Hebrew and into the Greek, the word is uh, bishop. Bishop. And the, uh, the idea of the word bishop is someone who is going to look intently at a situation and make a judgment. Make a judgment. And so what Sproul arrives out of this, derives out of this, is that God in his mercy has sent Jesus to be the bishop, to look intently at our situation, to look intently at the bed that we have made for ourselves, and then through his life, he's going to get us out of it. That God's love is so great for us that he sends the bishop of our souls, Jesus Christ, to meet us in the particular of our needs. In great mercy, God sends Jesus. I, I preached this again back in the summer, that uh, God descended into the particulars of our lives. And as he did, he didn't look at the mess that we made and said like, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm done. And pull away. And if you think that's what God has done, I hope you'll listen carefully to what I have to say. As God descends into the particulars of our lives and the particulars of the human race, instead of turning away from us, he turns towards us. He helps us. We are loved from on high, but then being loved from on high gets translated as that love comes to earth and meets us right in our need. The way that Luke has arranged his material helps the church to see then that God, in love, has taken action on behalf of his people by coming to them. By coming to them. That's why it's set in narrative. It is a personal story of God coming to his people. He first comes to a couple in their old age, has their reproach removed by giving them a son. He then tells it to a young virgin who then will have to bear reproach throughout her life because of what God asked of her. 
and that it is through the inability of people that God did his great work. The doubter, Zechariah, whose mouth is closed up, now gets his mouth open, and he is a proclaimer of the news that God has come to visit his people. And that proclamation then sweeps into chapter number two in the birth narrative of Jesus as who shows up in the heavens to tell those lowly shepherds out in the fields as they're watching over their flocks by night, what? Get into Bethlehem, the child's been born. The Savior of the world is come. This is what God has done on behalf of his people. In a church like ours, that has a large pool of knowledge about these things, let us never be stuck in the abstraction of truth. Familiarity, again, tends to breed contempt. And we lose the wonder and the joy and the meaning of these things. And they just become kind of a, an abstraction, like a truth that we know, but again, it's not transformative it's not disruptive to our lives the god who stepped into the particulars of a lost and dying world of people wants us to continue to do so on his behalf this is why the coming of jesus into the world shows us that the proper place for truth is always in the community of love the proper place for truth is always found within the community of love. We'll put this up on the screen, and I hope you will think about this, and I hope it might be transformative to us. Only great love can handle great truth. And unless we are living holy lives which sacrificially love one another, we will not be ready for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Only great love can handle great truth. When God sends his love, he sends it into the human community, specifically into a couple, Mary and Joseph, specifically into a nation, Israel, specifically into a world in need. And he's doing the same thing for us today. And then we need to be his agents who live out that love within community. You know, I, I didn't make this up. I don't make stuff up, folks. I didn't make it up. If you want to find in your Bibles and follow along as I read it, the book of James, verse number 8 and verse number 9. James chapter 5, verse number 8 and verse number 9. Listen to how James connects... Uh, the coming of the Lord and the ethic of love in human relationships. James 5, 8, and 9, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. Why? The coming of the Lord is at hand. Because the coming of the Lord is at hand, the implication is what? Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Why? So that you may not be judged. Who's at the door? The judge is at the door. The judge is at the door. You want to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ? Don't just say, oh, my sins are forgiven. I'm going to heaven. I'm good to go. Ask yourself about the condition of your heart. 
as it relates to love within the community. And specifically in James's thinking, grumbling. Uh, unless you think James is standing alone on this, you have to go back to Romans chapter 13 and verse number 10 through 13. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now what, is, what does Paul say next? Romans 13, verses 10 to 13. What does he say next? The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in what? Quarreling and jealousy. You, you might think it would be enough not to be you know, involved in sex orgies as a way to be ready for the return of Jesus. But Paul and James says, no, no, that's not enough. Don't be quarrelsome. I sent my love, God said, into the human community. I sent the Prince of Peace into the human community so that my people would be identified as a people of peace. Don't quarrel. What was the sin that destroyed the people as they left Egypt and were headed to the Promised Land? The one sin over and over and over again that Israel committed. The sin of grumbling. A quarrelsome spirit against God. It should not escape our notice that when Paul and James admonish the church to be ready for the Lord's return, they do so by pointing to the sins that are so prevalent within the church. And what was true of the church then, what was true of Israel, is true of us today as we are on our way to the promised land. When John the Baptist steps on the scene and he announces that the kingdom of God is at hand, he says, repent. And then what does he tell them to repent of? In both accounts, Luke and Matthew, we read that John is telling the people. And he's saying this, by the way, to both Jews and Gentiles. He's telling them to repent of the offenses against their neighbors, against the human community. In other words, one of the ways to get ready for the coming of the Lord is to check your relationships within the community of love, within your neighbors. Amen. What does John say? Don't be selfish. Don't extort through threat. Don't give false accusation. Don't be discontent with your wages. This is the indictment John gives against Israel. And as John called out their sins, he warned them not to trust in their lineage. Don't presume yourselves to say, Oh, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, John says, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. We must hear again with fresh ears that when our Lord returns, he is going to call into account the kingdom that we've established for ourselves. Because our kingdom can never compete with his kingdom. And just as the 
kingdoms of the wickedness of this world are going to be pushed aside and done away with. So the kingdoms that we have made for ourselves, kingdoms of resentment or bitterness, grumbling, discontentment, whatever it is, are going to be shoved aside. Paul said it, James said it, John said it. I'll say it. If you're going to be ready for the return of the Lord, live lives of holiness and lives of love. We need to hear with fresh ears, for Jesus himself said, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of my brothers, you did it to me. If we are ready to confess our lack of holiness and love, then let us remember Zechariah's prophecy that points us to God's mercy, which is offered to all who would repent of our sins. I ask you, I ask myself, are we ready to stop trying to run our own show? Are we finally ready to try to, you know, stop trying to get ourselves out of the beds we've made for ourselves? The judge is the bishop. The divine visitation is going to happen. It is an absolute certainty. In fact, it is so close, the Bible describes it as being right outside of the door. Let that be a massive encouragement for us because judgment pushes open the door of mercy. God is here among us today, and if we are ready to confess our sins and receive his forgiveness, he will not only forgive us, but he will free us from our sins. We are not here to pile on shame and guilt and make you feel bad. No, shame and guilt are removed through the power of the forgiveness of Jesus. And it is mercy that fuels us then to live lives of love and holiness because salvation has come through the house of David and Jesus is the one who sits on that throne and his kingdom is a kingdom of mercy. Hey, do you have enough staving, uh, staying power? I got one more just small little point. Are you okay? Are you all right? Hey, you know, raise your hands or do something crazy. There you go. Hallelujah. Preach it, brother, something like that. Okay. As Luke weaves this story together, he shows us that God is at work through the power of the Holy Spirit. In both uh, Luke and Acts, the Holy Spirit plays a dominant role it is as if luke is saying to the church don't fall asleep you know on the holy spirit you see each person right in luke 1 is in some way or another visited by the spirit as they use then um, their gift and service to god even john the baptist right in the oven still is doing somersaults when jesus you know inside mary walks in the room and the Holy Spirit's all over this story. And so it's not enough for us to say that we're waiting with confidence for the day of the visitation of Jesus. Because for that to be true, we actually have to be living in the power of His Spirit who is visiting us today, who is with us today. Remember what John the Baptist then said to the people about the ministry of Jesus. I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. If we are going to be a people who joyfully endure with holiness and love, 
it will be done through the power of the Holy Spirit who has been poured out. If you long for the return of Jesus, as you should, make sure you also long for the daily visitation of the Spirit of God who has already been poured out upon us. You see, Zechariah's prophecy was given at a time of occupation by Rome. But Rome was not the greatest occupying force in the world at that time. Evil was. And this means that Zechariah's prophecy is an announcement given in territory held largely by the force of evil. But as we observed last week, at the moment when Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary, a violent collision took place. Evil moved off its mark. This spirit-filled prophecy reinforces the work God was doing. It says to us today, take up courage, be bold, because the coming of the Lord is near, and may we as a church be awakened to the judge who is indeed standing at the door. And if we are awakened to him, then let that announcement of judgment push open doors that lead to mercy towards one another. And in some cases, being a whole lot merciful towards yourself. For as we lean into God's mercy, only then will we truly be ready to celebrate the birth of our Lord this coming Saturday as you open those presents and you um, try to figure out what you're going to do with the present you were given, you know, um, or whatever it might be, and you're just so having a wonderful day. Then you say, I'm here because of Jesus. Because Jesus, then, is the starting point for hope. And may God give us hope. Let me pray. Stir up thy power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And because we are sorely hindered by our sins, let thy bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with thee and the Holy Ghost, the honor and glory world without end. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.